Hey, everybody. Welcome into Eminem and M Across the Board. We are back for another episode, and this is some groundbreaking stuff today. Sean, Eric are with me. Guys, our first guest. History We've made in the it making. big. Wow. History in the making. History in the making. We're going to do the NFL, and we're going to preview the World Series. But our guest is author Tom Schaller. He wrote a book called Common Enemies, Georgetown Basketball, Miami Football, and the Racial Transformation of College Sports. We are so excited to have him on to share his insights and talk about a topic that I know, you know, that was in the 80s, but it's still so relevant now with everything that's going on in sports. So we're super excited to have him on. He is a good friend of yours, Sean. So thank you for uh, hooking us up here on the show. Absolutely. Happy to have Tom here. And, uh, you know, another big weekend in, in sports and another big week coming up. Yes, sir. And that starts as of taping tonight, Tuesday night, game one of the World Series. And that's where we'll get things kicked off, guys. The Braves get it done. They knock off the reigning champs, the Dodgers. And now they're going to Houston to take on a team that I'm sure most people are favoring in the Astros because of it's their third time in the World Series in five years. They have a lineup that top to bottom is very good. But honest, in all honesty, when I look at both of these lineups, to me, these teams are very even, especially the way that they're playing right now. The pitching staffs, normally I would give the uh, the advantage to the Braves with their three starters. But the way that Valdez and the way that Garcia are throwing right now, right now. I'm going to say I want to give the starting rotation edge to Houston, but I'm going to give the lineup edge to Atlanta at this point, just the way that they've played uh, in, in the playoffs so far. Yeah, I think that one of the key things here is Houston has the home garbage can advantage. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Um, the one thing I – you talk about the pitching staffs, and this is something we talked about last week with, with Dave Roberts and the Dodgers. He pitched Scherzer in the wild card game. Eric, you were critical of it. I understood it. You got to win that game to advance. But it bit him in the ass because Scherzer yeah. had a dead arm. Okay, he misused Urias, I thought, in game two of that series. He came back in game four. Not the guy that won 20 games. I cringe this time of year, like the like the Braves. Their fourth starter should be Huascar Noah, who had a very good year until he mm-hmm. punched a bench and broke his hand, but he came back and was effective. I don't understand why in baseball teams to say, we'll just have a bullpen game. Boys and girls, this is the World Series. Where's your four? You got every four. Okay. So here's the problem with having bullpen games and relying too much on the bullpen. Those middle guys, they're middle guys for a reason. Right. They're not good enough to start. They're not good enough to close. Yeah, they all have a role, but you can't you can't pitch nine guys in a game and think you're going to win a series. That's a bad recipe. I would love to see the Braves set their four. You got your top three. You got Morton Freed and Ian Anderson. Um, set him up for game seven. The guy's been great in postseason two years. Pitch Anoa. Pitch get to get the play the series the, with the reason you got there. Okay, you can change a little bit to win a game here and there but don't radically change it. I hope the Braves win. Ashley, I agree with you. The, the Astros are going to miss McCullers again, and mm-hmm. we'll see if that, that group can, can duplicate what they did against the Red Sox. Um, but, yeah, let's go Atlanta. I, I think they have the goods, and you got to give the Braves credit. They've been playing the last second half of the year without Ronald Acuna, who's the best player in the game, uh, and here they are. So uh, it should be a fun better. to watch. Those of us who know baseball and those of us who have fantasy teams who had Eddie Rosario on them at one time. <laughs> yeah, he hit 32 homers, 119 ribbies with the Twins just two years ago. 
so the Braves GM deserves a, a ton of credit. They could have packed it in. They rebuilt the outfield, as we've yep. said here, with Solo and Duval. There was a great stat, folks, from Jason Stark, who is my favorite writer behind Sean Martin. And and that is that the Braves did not spend a day over 500 until, get that, 111 games into the season. Isn't that amazing? Unreal. They were just written off. And yet they beat the Dodgers that had Scherzer, Bueller, and Urias. So Houston's loaded, no question. We know what the guys do in the playoffs with Correa and Altuve. And the, I think, really, they've done a, a fantastic job with McCullers out. So logic says to go with them on paper, and I'm a paper guy, but no way. The Braves are not logical, and that's why I like them in six. And I hope it goes seven, like the epic one with yeah. the Twins, because that World Series was <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I Listen, Houston is a tough, tough place to win, and Boston found that out. I, I thought that series was over with Boston up 2-1, just the way that it felt. And, man, did Houston prove that they cannot be messed with. And, and they, you know, they dominated those last few games, games against Boston. Um, so Houston is a really, really tough place to play. But Atlanta is a tough place to play, too. So um, I think, for me, it's so interesting. Like, last year, we saw this happen with Randy Rosarena, who was the hottest player in baseball in the postseason. The numbers that these guys are putting up in the postseason are absurd. Between Jordan Alvarez and Eddie Rosario, it's like the numbers are mind-blowing. Alvarez, seven extra base hits, nine RBIs in the postseason. Rosario, five extra base hits, 11 RBIs in the postseason. Logic says these numbers are not going to persist. You're not going to carry those through the World Series. But at this point, like, who's to, nobody stopped them yet, so I wouldn't be surprised if those are the two guys that continue to carry these teams through. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see short outings from starting pitchers. I agree with you, Sean, on the fourth starter. I think you start Anoa in game four, but you might it might as well be a bullpen session any, or a bullpen game anyway because he's going to have such a short leash that if he gives them two or three innings and gets into trouble, he's out and you're going to it'll essentially be a bullpen game with a short start. But we saw Anderson go three. We saw Martin go three innings in a postseason start. So it's just like, even if they're starting, they're starting pitchers. They're, the leashes are so, so short on these guys that these games are turning into bullpen games. Sean, who do you sit if you're the Astros because of the no DH in Atlanta? You know, again, you know my feelings on this stuff is that it's ridiculous. It really is. But they have to have a different lineup than they used to doing for 100 whatever regular season AL games they play. Who's going to sit in that Astros lineup in Atlanta, no DH. Uh, I'd probably get somebody a first baseman glove and sit Goriel. Mm -hmm. Off the top of my head, uh, yeah. that's what I would do. I think can't touch the thing I have with the starters is sometimes you have your. I know. Look, every game is precious. You got to try and win every game. But when you have a bulldog, you have a Max Freed, you have a, an Anderson who, who's got a great postseason resume. Even Charlie Morton's a big game mm -hmm. pitcher. I mean, he's sometimes, a big game pitcher. Sometimes if they get off to a rocky start, you have to let your guys work it out. Now, you don't want the game to get away from you. Mm -hmm. But when you when you change too much, I just I think it, it can it can come back and get you later. And that, I thought, was the thing that killed the Dodgers. He, Dave Roberts came so reliant on, on bringing out seven different guys. Mm -hmm. They were gassed by the end of the series. He pulled Bueller in his first start when he got off to a, to a rough start. I think you've got to let him try and work that out. Because he's your bulldog. He's one of them, maybe three or four. 
but you've got to let those guys try. And, and Noah had a very good year statistically. If he gets off to a rough start, I'm not talking about giving him five runs in the first inning. Right. I'm talking right. about two or three. Yep. Give him a couple innings. Get get you to the fourth, fifth inning if possible. And that's you know that's just unfortunately the way baseball is now. But I think you got to have faith in the guys that got you there to at least at least work through a rough inning. Roberts managed game one like a game seven. You just can't do it. The, that's the There's biggest three problem. more games, Ashley, coming up yep. after game one and two more after game two. You just can't throw out so many of those. But I know the feelings of everybody in the Astros. I get it. I agree. But there's only going to be four players left from that fiasco because we know Correa will probably go to the Yankees for – 30 billion a year or whatever this off season. So I don't want them for yeah, <laughs> stay away. Sign them in October. But my point is, you know, we don't hold the Chicago White Sox responsible today for the 2009, for the 1919 team. So if it takes till 2117 for the Astros to get off the hook, so be it. I want to look at the positive and that's Dusty Baker. Okay. It's hard yep. not to root against him because he's a good old baseball guy. He said on TV, I'm a cool 72. Damn right he is. He's respected throughout baseball. Perfect hire, went into that mess, calmed everything down, never won a title, should have with the Giants. So to me, whatever he wears for a cap, it's hard not to root for him. And if Houston wins, I want to see his face at the end of the game. He deserves it. The the thing about the Astros is this, and this will set the table for a little later in the show. You have guys like Korea, especially. He's the lightning rod. Right. He knows he's hated. And he plays into it. They, but they play into it. They don't run away from it. They mm-hmm. egg yes. on the – I kind of respect that as much as I hate them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to respect that. They know their role. They know people don't like them. Everyone's against them. But when you can turn that into a rallying point for your team, you become more dangerous as a group. Mm-hmm. And then that's what they've done in the last year and a half, as much as it sickens me. Yeah, and until those guys are gone, I'm not saying it's going to take till 2050, but until Correa and Altuve no longer play for the Astros or Bregman, it's hard to not root against them for me. I I love Dusty (laughs) Baker. I think it's a great story. 24 seasons. He's got 1,987 wins, the most wins of a manager without a World Series. But on the other side, how do you root against a guy like Brian Snicker? Like These guys are two of the oldest managers in the game, and Snicker may have had it harder than Baker. Like Snicker has been in the Braves organization for 40 years and he was up, down, up, down, fired, not, you know, like rehired. The guy went through more hardships than most people would put up with in five years. He's been through in a lifetime. It's so crazy to think about what he's been through and he's hard to root against too. Like these are just two good old boys who you feel like, oh, I would be happy for either one of them getting a world series title. But I just couldn't be happy for the Astros getting another World Series title. <laughs> and to put Boston to bed uh, now that there's two good things about this. One is that those of us that like that team can go to bed before the next morning at one. I so know. that's nice. The eyes won't be as pooped the next day. But secondly, looking back, the job that uh, Cora and Bloom, I'd been very critical of Bloom. The pickups, you can't analyze till the season's over. They're already ahead of where they were expected. And in looking back, they did overachieve, and there isn't anybody that had them with more than 82 wins. So uh, hats off to them. As as the season winds down, that's when people start to look and say, hey, you know, we had a pretty good year, unlike like the Padres and some other teams. Well, let, let's call it what it is. The Red Sox were on a roll until I joined their bandwagon. So <laughs> dirty water, hashtag dirty water nation. 
It's on me. I own it. The Chargers were on a roll till you joined the bandwagon too. So I, I'm not on the Chargers. Oh, you're right. But you were. You said you were in, and then you were blowing That's everything up. The second place Chargers. Second place. Yeah, yeah, I hear Chargers. you. Hey, at the end of, at the end of the year, we'll all have to look at our worst and our best predictions. Okay. Yeah. I will say I did. I didn't mean to jump off Atlanta, but I really believed in them as you did, Ashley. No and doubt. I will admit that the other a word and not a three letter one is Arizona. Remember I had them Owen four and Kingsley on the street. So win some, lose some, right? Yeah, no doubt. All right. Let's make some picks. You want to make some uh world series picks here? Sure. And give a little why. And I guys, this is interesting because these teams, you always think like, oh, what did they do in the regular season? Not only did they not play in this regular season, these teams haven't played since 2017. So there's no real comps. And like, well, when they played recently, this is how things went. They haven't played in four years. So there's no real comps to uh, put together. Uh, I'm going to go Braves in seven just because I can't pick against the Braves. And I think if the Braves win, it's going to take seven games to do it. I'd be shocked if they win a game seven in Houston. I'm going Braves in seven. I I love the matchups, and I think I know how hot Garcia was for that one game, but he struggles against lefties, and that lineup is all lefties in Atlanta. Albies can hit lefty, Freeman, Rosario. It They got a ton of lefties. So I think if you can win one of those two starts, whether it's Garcia or Valdez, uh, I think the, uh, the Braves have a really good chance. Um. My heart says Atlanta, but Your we're going on the record. I'll take the Astros in six. I think – I just think they're better top to yeah. bottom. They have guys um, – you know, the Braves with Freeman and Eric Soler and Duvall you brought up. Ozzie Albies is a stud. I'll pick Korea as the MVP, but Kyle Tucker, for those around baseball that don't know him, they will at the end. He's a yeah. big, big bat uh, from yeah. the left side for the Astros. So, yeah, that bothers me to make that pick, but I just think they're going to win, if nothing else, just to aggravate me. Yep. Aggravate all of us. Yes. I think the Braves are going to have the advantage in pitching, and I think that Hart does have a big play. They've got that monkey off the back. Remember, I thought for a minute I might have jinxed them when I did Hot Lana last week, okay? But the fact <laughs> is the Braves, like the Red Sox, the little train that could nobody believe in the Braves. Nobody did. Oh, it's going to be Dodgers, it's going to be Giants, whatever. And I don't care how old you are or young you are, as a professional sports athlete, they read that stuff. They know that stuff. And I think they believe in themselves. And we've had a lot of baseball teams over the years, wild card teams included, that just start believing in themselves and nobody else does. And I think Atlanta is in that role right now. I, I do think that they're going to pull this thing off in six. They're going to have to find a way to win in Houston. And I think the uh, the most valuable person in the World Series if he was in the ALS, is Brett Strom because he made an adjustment on a starting pitcher. The kid, they fixed the heel and, you know, got him in position in the rubber and look at the dominating effect he had. So if anybody could be the wild card in this, it is Brett Strom and Dusty letting him decide when the kids come out to use that that uh, pitching staff without McCullers. But I, I'm going to go with my heart with the team that's got a lot of it right now, and that's Atlanta in six. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, folks, Let's get to the good that, stuff. what's that, Ash? Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. Hey, Mohawk Honda. Heard about them on the show. The current supply and demand challenges within the auto industry makes this a perfect time for you to get top dollar for your vehicle. 
right now at Mohawk Honda, you can take advantage of the Kelly Blue Book instant cash offer. They will put cash in your hand for your vehicle the same day you come in, even if you don't buy from them. Not a bad idea. That's a pretty sweet deal, especially for all those recent college grads or students in need of a new ride or some extra cash. Mohawk Honda has consistently kept their lot fully stocked with hundreds of pre-owned vehicles. Their large inventory makes shopping fun as you browse through the many makes and models to choose from. You can also check out their full selection online. So stop in say hi to Greg Johnson, the assistant general manager, Jake Hot Sauce Doyle, our boy. <laughs> Luis, the VIP man Morales, are one of the many helpful sales consultants here at Mohawk Honda. There's a vast selection of Honda pre-certified or certified pre-owned vehicles. So now is the time to take advantage of the Kelly Blue Book instant cash offer. Mohawk Honda and Glenville, where they always go out of their way to please, to please you. you. Very good. And now on that note, we would like to welcome our first guest. Yeah. To M&M &M across the board, Dr. Thomas Schaller, PhD, North Carolina, 1970-1997, go Tar Heels. Uh, Dr. Schaller is a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He is the author of Common Enemies, Georgetown Basketball, Miami Football, and the Racial Revolution of College Sports, <clears throat> The Stronghold, How Republicans Captured Congress But Surrendered the White House, Whistling Past Dixie, How Democrats Can Win Without the South, and co-author of Devolution and Black State Legislators, Challenges and Choices in the 21st Century. Dr. Schauer is a former political columnist for the Baltimore Sun. He has published commentaries in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, the American Prospect, Politico, and the New Republic. And he's also appeared on ABC News, MSNBC, The Colbert Report, National Public Radio, and C-SPAN. Since 2004, Schauer has given lectures on American elections in 21 countries on behalf of the U.S. State Department. In Common Enemies, Schauer examines the key transitional decade of the 1980s. Now, two major college programs, Georgetown University Basketball and the University of Miami Football, led the racial revolution in Division I sports. Dr. Schauer lives in the D.C. area currently and grew up in the upstate New York town of Delmar, where, among other things, he played on the Price Greenleaf 1978 Little League team <laughs> with me. Welcome. And yet he's here with us. It's shocking. <laughs> and All congrats on the resume now, and he's come to join us. Tom, you only need 989 more appearances here to tie Steve Martin's SNL record. Good start. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me and thanks for that kind uh, introduction, Sean. You know, sure. it's, it's funny. In the book, I talk about how the 80s. Uh, was such a pivotal decade, not just for college sports, but for all sports, because uh, the, the launching of ESPN in 1979. And I remember the first time I ever saw ESPN, uh, and it was at your house, Sean. <laughs> I'll never forget <laughs> watching it. And I remember you saying, this is going to change everything. And I wasn't convinced. I remember watching, you know, they didn't have enough programming back then for those who might be too young to uh, have remembered. And they would show like speedboat races overnight and Australian rules, yep. football oh, games, right? Just to fill the time. Was huge during the day. It was crazy. Uh, I, I went to a trip, a State Department trip to Australia, and I got invited to the equivalent of their uh, semifinals, like the NFC Championship or the AFC Championship. I just happened to be there at the time they were playing the Australian Rules Football Championship. And the was Adelaide against some other team, I forget, um, from Sydney or whatever. And I actually knew the rules a little bit, and the, they were all amazed how this American knew Australian rules football with their little little thing where they would do that and they would kick it through the uprights. And I said, I grew up in my teen years watching Australian rules football because it was better than anything else on TV because it was on ESPN. 
So, Tom, just curious, what was the impetus for this book? I this that was a major decade for me growing my sports. I hated Georgetown. They they were a threat to my Tar Heels in in '92 uh, when when Ewing was a, a freshman, and the Hurricane football team ruined 10, 12 years beating, beating <laughs> my boys back here in red. It was traumatic for them. And that was my origin and disliking those teams, but that became a bigger thing. And then tell me about where you came about uh, the idea for the book and, uh, and how it, how it came along for you. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I think the preface, which is very short, uh, but I try to be really honest <laughs> about it. I, I wrote it at the end. I didn't start from the position of where you were, which is like I hated Miami and I hated Georgetown, though I did growing up. Uh, I wrote the preface at the end and realized that sort of why I did and sort of the sort of insulated world of upstate New York and cozy little Tony suburb of Del Mar outside of Albany. Um, you know, I told myself it was easy to hate Georgetown because Syracuse was a local team. And I went to Florida State for graduate school and was there in the you know sort of late 80s, early 90s and the Deion Sanders era and told myself I hated Miami because I liked FSU. And it was true to a point. But it was also that they were just such foreign teams, right, for many white spectators. And I guess I wrote the book in part because uh, I used to be a sports writer, freelance sports writer, when I was working on my PhD in Chapel Hill. I covered college sports, mostly women's sports. I covered those great Mia Hamm soccer teams when UNC would win the national championship in women's soccer every year. I usually was the secondary beat writer for the big sports like football and basketball. So I would cover Virginia coming to town or Duke coming to town or Georgia Tech coming to town to play the Tar Heels uh, at Keenan Stadium in football or at the Dean Dome in uh, basketball. Uh, but my primary coverage for varsity uh, lead stories was women's lacrosse, women's soccer, women's basketball. And I guess for me, I just wanted to figure out a way to write at the intersection of politics and races, which which is what I write about a lot in my day job, if you will, as a college professor, and marry that in some way to my sort of latent sort of unresolved uh, inner never got to be a sports writer career that I never never got to fully uh, to, to sort of flourish in. And so I thought, what would be an interesting book to write at the intersection of race and politics and also a formative experience for me like you? who I turned 13 in 1980. Right. So the 1980s were my high school and college years. Right. Really formative years when you develop your love for sports and your fandom and so forth. And so as I started reading and thinking, and there have been some great documentaries like the U on ESPN's 30 for 30, there's a great documentary in the Big East, but not one on Georgetown basketball yet, though apparently there's one in the works. I just thought this is this is the book to write for me about two programs that I sort of understood, hated and at a certain level from afar. And why don't I just take a closer look at the two of them? And the more I read about it and the more I wrote about it, uh, the more I realized I had something here. And fortunately, I, I had an agent and, and an editor at University of Nebraska Press who were willing to take a chance on a guy who isn't a trained sports writer. Uh, it's ironic, one, that University of Nebraska Press is doing it, given. <laughs> oh, I did see that, and I was like, hmm. But I'm just curious. I'm, we, we, I brought up Carlos Correa in the prior segment, playing into that role. I thought one of the things that those two teams did that probably furthered the dislike for them was they embraced it. They were brash, especially mm -hmm. Miami, Michael Irvin, yep. and that whole group. And they would come out there, and they would tell you, hey, we're going to come out and beat your ass today and then go ahead and do it. I mean, how much of that through your research did you see? Um, was it intentional or was that just them being them? 
Yeah, clearly it was intentional. And, and I think the thing that fascinated me about this project was that, you know, these amateur athletes, many of them in, in still in their late teens when they've, you know, in their first or second years of freshman, sophomore playing, uh, they changed the sport despite really having very few levers of power to wield. Uh, you know, there's no union. Uh, they weren't paid then. We didn't have the Supreme Court ruling that we had last year uh, for names, imagery, and, and licensing, which might be the topic of my next book. I'm thinking about writing about the NIL from a legal political standpoint. Um, and the fact that they were able to sort of graft onto college sports uh, and I borrow Bill Roden's term, you know, sort of the black style of play. They weren't the first to ever do it. Uh, they certainly weren't the last. Uh, they aren't responsible for all the changes and innovations of the 80s. But I basically argue that Miami football and uh, Georgetown basketball were accelerants, right? They sort of the, were the leaders of the mo of the movement. And you don't have to take it from me. I mean, you have people coming on later on at ULNLV and the Fab Five who look back and, and mention uh, the influence of Georgetown basketball on them. And, and similarly with, you know, teams that followed in the footsteps of the Miami Hurricanes, they were uh, very brash, very aggressive, um, very uh, bombastic. And as I say at the end of the first chapter, the black style is very different though. The Ewing um, and John Thompson led black style is very militaristic. Uh, it's very quiet. It's very Hoya paranoia. It's not very uh, loud in the sense that a lot of media trash talking. It's sort of just physically intimidating and stoic and quiet and mysterious. Whereas Miami, led by you know Jimmy Johnson, uh, who was a psychology major, his view was like, let the players be themselves and that in order to be confident, you needed to be brash. And he talks about how poor kids coming from Immokalee or Liberty City uh, from, you know, impoverished backgrounds and maybe disrupted families come on to Coral Gables, this leafy uh, sort of private school, uh, and they're intimidated. And how do they compensate for that? Uh, maybe overcompensate uh, with this sort of brash style and this finger pointing and trash talking and taunting. And Johnson's view was like, let them be, let, you know, let the canes be the canes. Whereas John Thompson, on the other hand, was like, you talk out, you talk out of style, uh, out of turn, you talk, you say something in front of the media and you trash talk and you're going to you're going to hear it from me. And so, you know, I say in the book that the black style un unites the two of them, but it's not monochromatic. There's different levels of gray there. And the way that John Thompson practiced it, I think, is strikingly different from the way that Jimmy Johnson practiced it. And you know what's amazing? Everything you said, what they did was without social media. Isn't that incredible? Right. <laughs> think think yeah. about what it would have been like then. But, Tom, the question I have, I think you're perfect for this, is, you know, we know politics and sports do come into play. They meet at intersections, sometimes like oil and water. We've all seen that. And, of course, recently we had an all-star game moved right out of a city, out of a state, due to something political. We've seen other yeah. instances. But in your case, Tom, you're well-equipped with your experience in both areas. We'd love to hear your opinion on the matter of mixing oil and water, politics and sports? Uh, this is a, a great question, Eric. I, my view is pretty clear on this. And as somebody who's written a political column for the Baltimore Sun, and I would get angry letters from people saying, you know, you, you shouldn't be doing this, your political, it's like, I'm still a citizen, right? My view is like, you don't surrender your citizenry as soon as you lace up your cleats or put on a helmet. Now, is there a time and a place we could argue about that? I mean, during the game, things like that, should Brian Bosworth have been making political statements or, you know, um, 
you know, on headbands and things like that. Maybe not. We could argue about whether Kaepernick is doing it at the right time and the right place. But the notion that politics uh, uh, should be divorced from sports and that athletes somehow surrender their 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 democratic, small d democratic entitlements as citizens is absurd. We don't say that about wealthy corporate billionaires, that they have to yeah. stay out of politics, you know, and yeah, uh, this whole notion of the whiny overpaid millionaire, I really address that late in the book. I, I find that to be one of the most offensive phrases that you hear in our culture, the notion that if you're making a lot of money playing a game, a game that, by the way, in the professional football realm is the average career, if you even make it there, is about four years and guys right. die really, really young from head injuries and you know, all the ECT stuff that we know about now, right? I mean, the notion that you, just because you're an athlete, you're not allowed to have views on politics to me is utterly absurd. We don't apply it to any other field. And we certainly don't complain about whiny, overpaid Facebook billionaires who <laughs> drop out of college and say that they didn't graduate from college and they therefore have no right to really engage in the public discourse or public deliberation. So I find that patently offensive. And frankly, I think there's a bit of a racial undertone to that as well. Yep. This notion that, hey, you should be happy. You're a poor black kid who, who has multi-million dollar contracts. So why don't you just shut up and catch your checks? I, 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 don't, I don't go in for that one bit. Yeah, I agree. And that was it's interesting you say that because that was something that started circulating on social media, of course, was the shut up and play. And that came out when the, the Black Lives Matter movements, when the WNBA was in the bubble doing all their social justice movements. So I agree. I think it's absurd. I don't think anyone should have to give up their beliefs and, and you know, what they hold, the rights that they hold just because of a job that they have. Listen, journalists are different and we we all know that we get into that. But when you go home at night, you still have those beliefs, whether or not you're allowed to voice them. Uh, Tom, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting was how you said how these two teams changed college men's sports and how they're marketed and sold, which makes incredible sense. But what did you see in that department? Because I just think it's it's so, so interesting how they changed the way that people viewed them, but also like merchandise sales and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think my the chapter I might be most proud of is the sixth chapter, which is called Commodification of Color. And it's really about how um, how much sports has changed from a marketing and an apparel and promotion standpoint. And as Eric pointed out, we didn't have social media back then, so it's obviously easier to do those things today. But I was fascinated. I, I Sadly, Sean, I went back and watched, for, sadly for you, I watched that Miami-Nebraska game. And there's lots to notice about it. There's lots to notice about the broadcast and the graphics and the things like that. But thing, a thing that really struck it, stuck, st sort of struck me when I was watching these old games is that just look at the, just look at the audience. Like today, you have a whiteout in Happy Valley at Penn State. Everybody, everybody is wearing the team's uniform, right? Even the visiting team's got its little pocket behind their bench and their separate color that you see stand out, right? It wasn't like that. Like there wasn't like tribal where everybody had a jersey on of the same color. I mean, there could be some variations or whatever. The flags. The colors yeah. in their team. Yeah. Yeah. And the flags and just the coordination of it. I mean, it's become so tribal. And the marketing of it. I mean, I'm a major Washington Caps fan. I have three different Caps jerseys. I have a red home jersey and I have a white away jersey and I have an alternate blue jersey, right? So it's like, it's, it's absurd. I mean, the, the level to which and pretty brilliant, right? You know, the, the Under Armors and the Adidas and the Nikes have marketed that tribalism. And the fact that athletes were able to do that, of course, amateurs who couldn't profit a nickel off of yeah. that. 
you heard the Jalen Roses of the world complaining in the Fab Five documentary about, you know, going and seeing the sneakers that they made famous and they don't see a nickel of it. And so to me, it's really remarkable how sports teams did that and created a tribalism. And, and race, as I argue, is really important factor in that, because if you think about African-Americans, which historic today now, African-Americans are about 14% of college graduates and they're about 13 or 14% of the population. So there's equity or equality there. Um, that wasn't always the case. And in the 1980s, African-Americans as a share of college graduates was much lower. And so if you're an African-American, why are you rooting for some college team that's say out in, you know, the state capital, Lansing, Michigan, or some remote town, right? Like, uh, you, know, where, you know, Happy Valley, like what's your rooting interest there? Uh, until and unless the black, black athletes draw you into it, right? You didn't go to Penn State. You're not a booster. You're not sitting there at those tailgate parties, right? You're not an alumni. You're not on some email list, right? So what's your connection to Penn State? And so I think what black athletes did is they brought a lot of black spectators and many white spectators in to root against, as I said, these sort of white uh, uh, root against these black Goliaths fighting against these white Davids, as I coined them in the book. Yeah, Tom, you you brought up that national title game at the end of the '83 season. That was one of the worst moments of my sports fandom. <laughs> Tom Osborne could have could have kicked the extra point and gotten a tie, and would have won the national title most likely. He would have backed into it, but kudos to him for going for two. I don't know why you don't run the ball, but whatever. Eleven years later, Nebraska rallied back against Miami in the Orange Bowl in the '94 season, January first, '95. To win me my first title as a Husker fan, I was too young for the for the first two. That, but the bitterness that I felt toward that team through that eleven years, it felt like every year we'd go to a bowl game, go down to go down the Orange Bowl, and just get our tails kicked. And it felt that way because it was real; it happened. What? Um, now that I got that out. Was there anything about this <laughs> research and through your writing that surprised you that you didn't expect to learn in this project? Um, I don't know. I guess I was really surprised. I wrote chapter three about the racial history of the two cities. Now, I live in Washington, D.C., so I sort of know it in a way that you just kind of know it from the city you live in. But I actually had to read up on the Washington riots in 68. And so I draw this parallelism between the racial environment of the two cities because I the chapter is called Unlikely Incubators. And I make the argument that these were two very unlikely programs, right? Miami almost ended its football program with a vote of the board of trustees seven years before it won that title over Nebraska. They were going to disband football. Uh, they were viewed as a program that good schools went to visit and played away games so they could have a vacation in the middle of their schedule. Georgetown was a terrible basketball program. They had only gone to a postseason tournament two times in the 43 years before John Thompson was hired in 1972. So these weren't programs that if you thought, who's going to lead the – you know, if you're, if you're sitting somewhere in, say, 1978 or 79, and you say, who are the two programs that are going to revolutionize uh, sports, especially from a racial aspect? Uh, and dominate those sports. It's not like they revolutionized it and they were middling teams. I mean, Georgetown, you know, they go to the final eight, six out of 10 years during that decade. And Miami, you know, won 34 consecutive games at one point. So it's not just that they changed the tenor and the style and the inclusiveness of sports. Like they dominated, as you pointed out. So I guess I was surprised about in a way about the racial history of Miami and the racial history of Georgia, uh, of DC and reading up on that and how, 
it's interesting that John Thompson was hired in 72, as I discuss in that chapter. Yes, to revive a program that went three and 23 under a guy named John McGee the year before there, but also because the leaders of Georgetown said, we are living in this little cuckoo's nest in this little chony corner of Northwest Washington, DC. And four years ago, we had riots and after the Martin Luther King assassination that tore the city apart. And last year we had the May Day riots where students protests in the Vietnam War were chased off the Capitol by the National Guard and they retreated to Georgetown because Georgetown said you can come here safely and we won't allow the police and the National Guard onto the yard, onto the campus. And they said, we're kind of like living removed from the politics of the moment here. And so Thompson's hire was partly because he was a great high school basketball coach here in DC, but also to bring the university into the future. And I think the Schnellenberger hires and especially the Jimmy Johnson hires too were designed to bring uh, Miami forward after the equally a violent, more violent in a sense, 1980 Liberty City riots that just tore that city apart and literally was on fire. The tire factory uh, in, in Miami was on fire for four days there after the murder of uh, the, the, the acquittal of the officers who killed a guy uh, named uh, Arthur McDuffie. Uh, in a trial that uh, really sent the city uh, in, a, in, a, in a tailspin for about a week. And Tom, if we had a time machine, we talked about going back and adding social media. Can you imagine Irvin and all of those players with <laughs> NIL? They would all own um, Earth now. They would be joining <laughs> Musk and taking people to, spa to space. Can you imagine what NIL would have been like then? And, and what's your thoughts of it now? Yeah, I mean, again, and not just the black players. One of the players I talk about a lot is Brian Bosworth. He's not the only yeah. one, but I talk about him in this sort of long line of appropriating black culture with a white face, whether it's Elvis, whether it's Madonna, whether it's Justin Timberlake. I remember as a freshman in college, the first time I heard a Madonna song thinking, wow, she must be a really talented black singer. And then I saw her on TV. I was like, oh, that's a white woman, right? Like, I mean, Bosworth, I mean, lots of athletes, you know, uh, white chocolate, right, would have uh, appropriated um, you know, their image and their style uh, by having control over their name and image and likeness in a way that athletes do now. And I think that's long overdue. Uh, Taylor Branch, who lives here in Baltimore, who has won a Pulitzer Prize for his three-part biography of Martin Luther King. I've had him come visit my classes. Uh, he's a really great guy. And he wrote that uh, fascinating piece now. It's about 10 years ago in the Atlantic. And, you know, he sort of talks about how Athletes, he says, I don't think the slave mentality is appropriate, uh, but he says it's the, the, the metaphor he likes is a cartel. And essentially the NCAA and pro sports that we are a cartel. It's 32 little owners in the NFL that get to decide all these things, like whether Colin Kaepernick will ever play again. And uh, a cartel is is anti-capitalist, right? It's, it's something that we break up. We broke up uh, AT&T into smaller regional bells, right? We don't want monopolies or oligopolies or cartels to control the global oil supply or satellite radio, right? There used to be Sirius and XM, and now they're both owned by the same, and guess what? Now you have commercials on free satellite radio. That's what happens when you have a monopoly. And I think breaking up the monopolist or oligopolist nature of NCAA sports uh, and giving players what they're due uh, is a long overdue uh, change, and uh, hopefully the future will make it uh, worthwhile for players who are clearly exploited, uh, many of whom never go on to pro careers and end up heavily injured uh, and broke out of college. All right. Uh, Tom, when's the book uh, being released? 
It's officially published uh, this week, uh, November 1st, which is Monday or Tuesday next week. Uh, but it's available on Amazon. So uh, obviously people can get a copy. And I know friends and family who ordered it uh, early in October and already have it. So it's, you know, it's in the warehouses, even though the official published date is uh, next week. Well, awesome. Once again, uh, Common Enemies, Georgetown Basketball, Miami Football, and the Racial Transformation of College Sports. By Dr. Tom, I told you this. I think I told you this off camera, but I'm going to tell you this on camera. I, and this is not blowing smoke. I am unendingly interested in this, number one, because I'm a Syracuse fan. So I understand the hatred of Georgetown basketball. Um, but also because I just am fascinated by not so much political issues, but social issues, which become political in sports. I'm not going to lie. I probably won't read any of your other books about politics because <laughs> I'm not smart enough, nor do I care enough, but I will read this book cover to cover. And I can't wait to get back to you on what I think of it. I appreciate Thank that. Tom. Ashley. Tom, before we let you go on a personal note somewhere, there's a former Spanish teacher of ours cringing at the thought of us <laughs> being in the same room together. <laughs> yeah. We, we had some good times. Sean is the person who turned me into a sports fan, to be honest with you. I mean, his his love for sports, his encyclopedic knowledge of sports, um, you know, was was something. I mean, I like sports as a kid playing baseball and football and stuff, but I'm talking about being a sports fan and somebody who followed sports and got into the statistics of sports and so forth. Uh, really, I owe that to Sean more than anybody else. That's true. For Thank, you for that. Years, Thank you very much. I, I, I want to say, Tom um, – the next book I hope you write will be How to Fix the Orioles. What a disaster <laughs> down there. I hope they come back. But thank you for your yeah. time. It's very good. Every spring I would tell Tom, watch the Stanley Cup playoffs. Best sports, best postseason in, in sports. You didn't listen. Now he's a Capitals uh, season ticket holder. So no better doubt. late than ever to the party. It is the best playoffs. All right. Thanks so much for having day. me. I really appreciate the support, you guys. Thanks, Tom. Sure thank okay, cheers. That was awesome. Right. It was. I loved it. Speaking of awesome, fall is officially here, and that means changes may be coming to your home. Does your furnace need to be replaced, or are you looking for an upgrade to your heating system? My heat's on, by the way. I don't know if anything else. Ours is, too. We finally yeah. did it. Johnstone Supply and Troy can make sure your home is heated properly for this colder weather on the way. A family-owned and operated business, Johnstone Supply and Troy has been helping upstate New York residents for decades. Visit their store on 6th Avenue in Troy for more information on how they can help you this fall. Whether it's finding the proper change for your filters or making sure your home is heated properly for the new weather, Johnstown Supply and, Supply and Troy staff can help you answer any questions you may have. From George to Tom and many more, the staff is looking forward to seeing you. Follow them on Facebook or call them today at 518-272-5922, Johnstown Supply in Troy. Eric McDowell. Well, this is funny. We're going to the NFL now, but uh, Tom asked if we had another segment, and I said, yes, NFL, and he said, okay, cool, Browns fan. Browns fan. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. <laughs> Long-suffering. <laughs> yeah, that's embroidered well, on Brown's hat. It says, on Brown's hats, it says long-suffering in the back. <laughs> oh, yeah, it should. It should All right, that. now I've got three downs for you. Stay with me, and then I will punt to Ashley on the fourth All down. All right, let's do it. I'm always three and out. So there's a new TV show, I think it's called L.A. Brea or La Brea, in which a sinkhole happens right in downtown Los Angeles. Well, guess what? There's also a show on Sundays where a sinkhole happens in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Oh, and it's called J-E-T-S, Jets, the bottomless pit, 
now featuring the loss of Zach Wilson, maybe for four weeks. Flacco's back. It's a black hole to nowhere. Patriots win 12 straight over the Jets. Most points allowed by the Jets since 1978. And Mac had his first 300 passing game. So good for him. Can the Pats sustain it? Well, we'll see. But how about Zach as in Taylor, the coach of the Bengals? They found a way to contain Jackson. 15 of 31. He was sacked five times. Remarkable. Bengals had a huge statement win on the road in the division against a Baltimore team that really had been playing playoff-style football. And then we have the Chiefs. Let's tip our hat to the Titans. Did they lose to the Jets? Who found a way to contain and harass Mahomes. Five sacks, interception, fumble. KC now two turnovers at least in five of six. And good luck coming ahead on the schedule. You've got Rodgers. You've got Carr. You've got Prescott. So at this rate, there won't be a team singing in the playoffs like Fats Domino. <clears throat> I'm going to Kansas City. Kansas City, here I come. They're not going to be hosting any playoff game. So, Ashley, I'm going to punt to you, and if you want to dance, I'll keep singing. Yeah, yeah, I'll dance for you here. Uh, guys, okay. listen, if there is anyone on this planet other than, like, a diehard Bengals fan who said that they knew and had confidence in the fact that the Bengals were going to be 5-2, and two, they're lying to you. I think the Bengals are the biggest surprise in the NFL currently, but I feel like every week I'm surprised by someone new. Last week, it was the Ravens dominating the Chargers. This week, it's the Bengals dominating that same Ravens team. And Eric, I think, Eric, was it you that said Jamar Chase? Or was it you that said Jamar Chase, Sean? Not me. Chase, my boy. Eric, that's going to be your winning ticket for the year. That'll be your best prediction because that guy is on the fast track to rookie of the year. You can just tell how much it benefits being having Burrow and Chase. They played in college together. He is unbelievable. And that was a competitive game until into the third quarter, and they just blew the doors off. But I think the most surprising thing about the Bengals is their defense. Like, their defense is legitimate, and that's what's allowed them to win games this year. You're right. The Jets are a black hole. The Giants finally got a win. And this, I know, listen, I wasn't convinced that Daniel Jones was athletic. People keep saying, Daniel Jones is athletic. That one-handed catch was pretty absurd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, with Jamar Chase, he would have been – he was picked really high in the draft. He would have yeah. been a bigger name, but he sat out last year. <laughs> but uh, – <clears throat> excuse me for one second. <clears throat> Notice I right. didn't so, <laughs> so I'm going back to the Chiefs, the narrative on Patrick Mahomes, Mr. Turnover. We talked about it. He's had the problems this year. He seemed to get away with them last year. He's not this year. Why is that? Number one, his offensive line is all new. They haven't meshed. Mm-hmm. He is so talented, he's too talented. He yeah. needs to learn his fumble that cost him the other day. He was going for an extra yard or two. You got a slide, dude, because somebody could hit him, and he fumbled the football away. Mm-hmm. And the play he got hurt, he was going off balance, leaning forward. He got hit by a, yeah. by a thigh or whatever. Good. Take the sack, right? He's lucky that ball didn't get intercepted when he just lofted it up there, and that's where he's making his mistakes. He is able, he has an ability to throw across his body, throw sidearm, underhand that very few quarterbacks, none, have. But it's hurting him in a way yep. because he's trying to force it. And when you force it, sooner or later, the NFL, the one thing about defenses in the league, they catch up to you, okay? They caught up to Michael Vick when he brought a new dynamic. 
they haven't really caught up to Lamar Jackson yet, but you kind of see it, right? The, the the Bengals did, and good for the Bengals. But Zach Taylor, former Nebraska quarterback in the late nineties, I didn't even know he was oh. coaching. I didn't even know he was coaching on a staff as an assistant. He got that job, and I'm like, wow, Zach Taylor, <laughs> good for them. You know, it, it, um, the Raiders have in consecutive weeks coming up a bye week, and then at the Giants, and then you got Kansas City, the Bengals, and then Dallas on Thanksgiving Day, uh, which means a quiet day in the Martin household. Sorry, family. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, the Chiefs, three and four, but they have some holes, and their defense is ranked 31st and 32nd against the pass mm-hmm. and against the run. Yep. They have some serious issues. Um, they get a layup this week. Not a layup, but though they should handle the Giants. Um, but, yeah, there's some problems there. But Pat Mahomes has to figure it out, and he's got to be just – I've been banging on his turnover ability all year. He's got to be more careful with the football because he's hurting them as much as he's helping them. And he's young, and people, you know, we yep. we forget, but he's young. But because he's done so much so early, I look at McDaniel's, and the minute that his young quarterback comes off, he sits right down with the iPad. Good job, or here's how to work. That's what they got to do. Where is the O coordinator? It's like a hit, hitting coach in baseball watching a guy like Renfro go old for twelve. Talk to him. But football coaches watch more film than the academy voters do. Okay, it's all about film. It's all there to see. And you make adjustments. And we know they even make it at halftime. We've seen that with Belichick and and Andy Reid, many others. But somebody's got to talk to the kid, Mahomes, sit down and go over those things, not during the week as well, but also in game, because he is trying too hard to do too much. And now people are making adjustments. Yeah, I think the most impressive thing about that game, guys, was that like neither and Ryan Tannehill never will blow your doors off. We've talked about that time after time. He doesn't have to be great. He doesn't even really have to be good. He just has to be good enough, but he was 21 of 27, which is really good, but he only threw for one touchdown and Henry by all standards, by his standards was just kind of average 29 carries, 86 yards. And he threw for a touchdown. If you had told me those numbers, I probably would have been like, yeah, maybe the chiefs win or it's a close game, but at no point, was that game close. So that's kind of what I was most stunned by was like Tennessee's numbers weren't eye popping by any stretch, but Kansas city just wasn't good. And and listen, Kansas city's defense has been a huge problem for a while now, but now it's rearing its ugly head because the offense just can't score. And it's so counterproductive. Yeah. And the thing you go back with the chiefs, if you look at their last six or seven games of the regular season last year, they weren't this juggernaut rolling over Mm -hmm. people. They were all one score games. Uh, I, I honestly think they got exposed in the Super Bowl, the Tampa Bay defense, and that might have been the blueprint that people are finding. That's it. The NFL is a copycat league. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe teams are looking at that. And you know what? Sometimes just the law of averages balances out. I'm happy for this week. Thursday night football finally has a really good matchup. Yep. Um, Green Bay, one loss. Arizona unbeaten. COVID is really hurting the Packers this week already. Devontae Adams is out. Yeah. Um, but that that should be a great game to watch because, yeah, Adams isn't there, but still you have Aaron Rodgers uh, against Kyler Murray. Uh, you're not going to get too many better quarterback matchups than that this year. Yeah, and we keep talking about – I just think it's so interesting. Obviously, the Cardinals are 7-0. and We're talking about the Titans. We're talking about the Bills. And somehow the Bucs are 6-1, and and it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, the Bucs. But, like – this is a really good Bucks team. And if you get Tom Brady throwing four touchdowns a game, look out. Like, I think the AFC has some of the more interesting teams and is probably top to bottom 
or the best teams in the AFC are are just more interesting to me. And I think maybe we'll go further, but like the Chief, uh, the Bucks are going to be there at the end of the year. And I, I feel like people are forgetting about them, which mm-hmm. is hard to believe. Like they just won the Super Bowl. Yeah. They're not a storyline right now. I think the right, story, if, if we're getting this, these many injuries now, this is 17th game. Yeah. And I'm, I'm stunned the players association. It, it, I, I get the money, but you're also talking about health careers. And and if Tom mentioned an average NFL career like running back is four years, you're throwing a 17th game. I get the buy, but you're mm-hmm. still playing another regular season game, which means the playoffs go longer. So I do think the AFC, the minute you come into the AFC last week, and my friend down that, that works the Raven stack crew, he said before the game, Cincinnati is dangerous when they play us. I think they're a year away, he said, but the way we're playing, I don't see how they're going to stop. At the end of the game, he said it was the worst Ravens second half he'd ever seen in all these years working on the stack crew. And he said, Eric, on your show, do not predict the AFC champion. Just don't even bother. Wait till it happens in the playoffs. But I'm worried about the injuries. I'm really worried about the injuries later in the year, another game. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. All right. We are Eminem and M across the board. You can find yes, us Apple, YouTube, Spotify, Twitter at MMMATB1. I haven't done that yet, so there it is. Um, we're ready for whiteboards? We are ready for whiteboards. All right. I'm going to go first because I'll just get it out of the way. Mine's easy. Your guys feels like a little bit more work. Does that work for you? Sure. All right. This, I love these stories to me. This, this story, I laughed so hard, and I told the whole newsroom about it when it happened. So Tom Brady throws his 600th career touchdown, which is ridiculous and absurd for all of the reasons that 600 touchdowns is ridiculous and absurd. But he throws it to Mike Evans, who then goes into the stands and gives the damn football away. (laughs) You see Mike Evans on the sideline and someone comes up to him to tell him, hey, man, that was Tom Brady's 600th career touchdown. And he goes, oh, I just gave the football away. And I laughed so hard, first of all, but then I did think this is exactly where my mind went. Like, oh my God, that fan is going to get so much stuff. They've got all the power and they could ask for whatever they want and they're probably going to get it. And you see it happen all the time in baseball because home runs naturally go into the stands. But this is this can happen very often. And Mike Evans was clearly so just had no idea what was going on and what the circumstances were. Guys, this fan got, and rightfully so, Two signed Brady jerseys, a Brady helmet, a signed Mike Evans jersey, his game-worn cleats, a pair of season tickets for the rest of this season, and a pair of season tickets for next season, and $1,000 to the team store. I mean, holy, you know what? That is awesome. First of all, I wish I was that person who got that football because I don't even like the Bucks, but I would take all that stuff. Even $1,000 to the team store would have been good for me. But, man, that stuff is going to be worth something someday and good for that person. And they should give Mike Evans a kiss for giving them that football. It's worth something now. Okay. I have a friend of mine who follows this stuff. Talked to him this morning. Early estimates are 400,000, if not more. Okay. (laughs) If I'm that fan, I'm the last guy that's going to go lick Tom Brady's bootstraps. Okay. Mm -hmm. If I'm that fan, I still have the football. I'm negotiating. Right. All those well, things clearly, are nice. Clearly he negotiated. Nice. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. But cash is king. Show nah. me the money. 
there's enough, there's a lot of money in the Brady uh, household with his wife and him and everything else. Take the money. They, they, let's make a deal. I, look, all those are nice. And it was a nice gesture, you know, the Bucks to give them the tickets. And all. I'm, I'm not ripping on them. But, man, I, I'd have held that ball for a day or two and thought about it. Yeah, but you can't look like – then you look like the jerk who, like – But I'm the jerk for the big check. You know, they like, give you the photo. They're not just going to give you cash. Thing. That's not going to happen. They're not just going to give you straight cash. Cash. No, they won't do cash. that. Pay the man. Well, as a, as a PR person, I know it's a nightmare when it's a foul ball in the stands or something like mm-hmm. that. Fortunately, with TV now, there's more cameras and you can track the person down. Yeah. And local broadcasts will show the person and show them negotiate. I think it's wonderful that, you know, most fans will say, hey, that's a special thing in their career. But I can't really fault the receiver because a coach would say, and I know this for a fact, they'd say, we don't care about numbers. Game day, we don't care about numbers. Now, obviously, he must have been aware of it in some fashion, but when he's playing the game, he's not thinking about this number or that number. Brady isn't, the receiver isn't, nobody is. But Mm -hmm. when it happened, yes, when watching that, as a PR person, I'm like, oh, my God. But thank God he didn't throw one of these up in the stand or up in a gun because at a football game, you can't track down a fan like that. So – uh, I have no problem with it. I think it's great when an athlete has numbers like that. And Tom and the good ones never say numbers don't matter, just the ring. But trust me, down the road, he'll be very happy that he has it on that mantle yeah. in his house. No doubt. I don't know if you guys can hear this adding machine. I'd be having that thing popping the whole time. <laughs> Bring it up. Finance guy. Good sound hey, effects. <laughs> Eric, you or me, buddy? Go ahead. All right. So the NBA announced their top 75 all-time players. Sorry for the extra homework assignment, Ashley. Yeah, both of you gave me homework. So I was thinking if I was going to put together a starting five, a team, not the five best players to ever play. That's important to remember here before you all start. Positions one through five. Yeah, before you start sticking pins in your Sean Martin voodoo doll, this is – the top that if I was getting a starting lineup, how would it look? Okay, good. Okay, first team. Woo! Larry Legend, Tim Duncan, Wilt, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, and coached by Red Auerbach. Okay. Great. Okay. Second team. LeBron, Kevin Garnett. Kareem, Oscar Robertson, Kobe Bryant, Coach Pat Riley. Okay. So to anybody out there thinking, how is LeBron below Larry Bird? To me, that was the toughest call. LeBron is probably the second greatest player to ever play the game. Bird, to me, was more So of Bird is the first player. greatest player ever to play the game? Michael Jordan is the best player. Well, I know. No, he's, he's not. not. I said starting five. I'm putting together a team. Hmm. The, yeah. the difference was in crunch time, Larry Bird. I was no Celtic fan back then. He was a killer. He was. He was an absolute killer. LeBron, I go back to Miami. I thought he deferred in too many big moments. So I, for me and Bird, they're both great. Obviously, you're having a conversation like this. You can name five starting. Five yeah, yeah. But I would have Bird because he. I thought he is a better facilitator. And okay. if you needed a three, especially from the corner, he's your guy. He had one miss. In the eighty, uh, the eighty-seven finals against the not eighty-seven, eighty-five finals against against the Lakers, 
that would be my five thinking about uh, what the two of you came up with. Yeah. So I did it a little differently. I just made sure I went by position, but I didn't necessarily think about how they would either play together or who was more clutch, just That's like okay. my five top players at the positions. There's no rules that, here. Whatever, yeah, you, whatever they were you want. At. So I went Magic, MJ, LeBron is on my first team, Duncan, and I went Kareem for my center. Wilt is on my second team. Uh, along with, and this was a tough one for me, but I kind of, like I said, I tend to trend young. I went Steph Curry because I think at, when all is said and done, he is one of the most transformative point guards in the game. Mm. Then I went Kobe, Kevin Durant, Carl Malone to go along with Wilt for my second team. I will. What do you got, Eric? Well, first of all, I want to say coming up is November 1st, and that was the anniversary of the very first NBA game the Knickerbockers played in Toronto against the Huskies. And no, I was not the PR guy then. But in a nod to history, the Raptors are playing at the Knicks on November 1st. So that's that was great that they made that happen. Cool. It was an honor to serve, even if it's for a short time as a PR person, of one of the 11 original teams. The Warriors, of course, started in Philly. But picking this team is like, trying to spend one day at the Smithsonian. Good luck. I think both of you nailed them. I think you did a tremendous job. My starting five at center, I have to go Kareem. All-time scorer, third rebounds, blocks, dominated in college, one of the best college pro runs ever, and he didn't miss a beat in the pros. Lived up to expectations. Forward, I got to go. I'm really going with LeBron because what he's done is remarkable. He's transformed teams, and they win with not the best supporting cast. Sometimes, yes, but he's turned around his hometown franchises. Great call on on Tim Duncan. People forget because he played in one of the smallest markets in all of pro sports, San Antonio. You can walk here to there and be out of the city. (laughs) 15 straight All-Stars and just a tremendous time. Five NBA titles. Guards, I've got Jordan, and I'm going to put the logo there. The logo is Jerry West. All right. 14-time yeah. All-Star. He averaged nearly 30 points a game in his career, and he has a logo. Seriously. That's him. And then the bench, I've got Bill Russell, who was one of the most mm-hmm. remarkable human beings I ever got to meet and talk to, and I will never forget that, even though my neck still hurts from that. And then I go with Wilt, Magic, Larry Bird, Kobe, and Carl Malone, and yes, Red is the coach. Great job. Yeah, I, I got Phil as my coach, but only because Red is too far beyond my time, so <laughs> I went with Phil Jackson, which Phil Jackson is, you know, not the worst. Sure, not wrong option. with that. Um, yeah, guys, I thought center was the hardest position for me just yeah. because they're, like, the guys at the top of that class, like, we never, we didn't talk about Shaq. We didn't talk about Hakeem Olajuwon. Like those are guys that like that position was just so good over time. It feels like all the other positions are a little bit more clear cut with like a top two. The center position for me is like a top five or six. Yeah. I thought Olajuwon and Russell were right there three and Mm -hmm. four. Uh, I mean, Russell's got so much hardware from winning NBA titles and Mm -hmm. Olajuwon was just, I don't know if there's been another like him. Mm He, he, I actually think he's underrated. Yeah. Uh, even though he had so a couple too. titles. Uh, he was just a force. Um, and he, boy, was he fun to watch. So, mm-hmm. and yeah, Russell the center was Wilt, very difficult. Russell and Wilt were the original Magic and Bird. That rivalry, I know the league was smaller and, and less talented, but Russell and Chamberlain, there was nothing to, to 
compare to that until people of today saw Magic and Larry's rivalry. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, what you got? It's that time of the month, meaning it's the number of the month, and the number is 32. And we're going to bring up the same name. There may not be a more iconic number in sports, okay? Because we we went over some of the names. Everywhere you look, these guys are Hall of Famers. This Uh is a blast, okay? This is fun. Good luck, both of you. Here are my top three. I had to have a tie. Sandy Koufax, Carl Malone. Could not break that tie. Koufax, you know, short, distinguished career, three size, MVP as a pitcher, three titles, two series MVPs. Everywhere you look, everybody I've talked to, Koufax was absolutely dominant in a short time. And then the mailman. We could use another mailman today. That's for sure. Nearly 37,000 points, 15,000 rebounds, 14-time All-Star, two-time MVP. Got a tie, Carl and Sandy. Number two, Jim Brown. Yeah. Pro Football Hall of Famer, nine-time Pro Bowl, lousy actor, but eight-time rushing leader. Eight-time first-team All-Pro, over 12,000 yards, 160 TDs, a title. He did all that in just nine years. He was great in Dirty Dozen. And he was an awesome Cornell uh, uh, student-athlete in lacrosse. And the great Dick Schaap once said to me, Eric, in my book that I'm writing, I'm going to tell people Jim Brown was better at lacrosse than football. So for those of you today that didn't know who Jim Brown was or didn't see him, imagine Derrick Henry. With 50% more muscle. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. And number one is Magic Johnson. Five NBA titles. He revolutionized the position, played multiple positions, and joined Larry basically in reinventing the NBA to new audiences. They carried that rivalry into the pros. 12-time All-Star, three-time MVP, nearly 18,000 points, and still over 10,000 assists. There's only one ball on the court, folks. And the other thing with him, nobody calls him Irvin. Right. What do you think, Ashley? Uh, I, we have the same names. I went Jim Brown at three, Magic at two, and Sandy at one. Mm. For me, I, the the number thirty two is a, the when you put out that list of names, I was like, I'm not sure that you're going to find a better number right. of just some of these guys. They're at the top of their sport, right across the board. Um, Shaq was an honorable mention for me to Magic. If we're going basketball, I tried to hit every sport. But Shaq was an honorable mention for me. Obviously, he didn't wear 32 for his whole career. But, um, yeah, so I think we're going to come up with a few of the same names here. What do you got, Sean? Yeah, same honorable mention for me because I'm a homer. Marcus Allen and uh, Jack Tatum from my Raider days. Uh, number one for me is, is Magic Johnson. Uh, he was He's probably my favorite NBA player to ever have watched. Enjoyed his career. He was just, just unbelievable. Even going back to Michigan State when they played Bird. Uh, the 79 national title game that was transcendent. Jim Brown, number two. Uh, yeah, Koufax belongs in there. I never got to see him pitch. So just as a special thing, one of my favorite players to watch ever was Steve Carlton. He would throw a yes. slider that just left-hander couldn't touch. So watching lefty pitch was a lot of fun uh, in the 70s and 80s. So I'll put him on this list. You guys covered Koufax. Awesome. Um, so I'll uh, I'll go with lefty Carlton as my number three. And I'm going like to give you a best active. But just a couple others, folks, that hadn't been mentioned. Halliday, Dave Winfield. How about Winfield? Yep. Dr. J, Kevin McHale, Bill Walton. 
I mean, it was very hard not to keep him with everything that he did. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Alan Harris, Jaron James, hockey, the only one would be Dale Hunter. And I know Sean and I would have no interest at all in putting him on there. But no, <laughs> the best active number 32, this took a lot of work. But I think we got one that really fits as the best active 32. And it's Jonathan Quick, the goalie of the Los mm -hmm. Angeles Kings. Okay. Seems like he just came up, but he's won two Stanley Cups, very competitive now. Con Smythe playoff MVP winner, two-time Vezina for best goalie, and an Olympic silver medalist. So hats off to Jonathan Quick of the LA Kings for our best. He's your current winner. 32. So yeah, having some whatever we I think we'll have 32 pieces of candy we can send them. How's that? I was gonna say we'll send them something. <laughs> yeah, you know, if just keeping it to sports. You got to put OJ Simpson out there too. Yep. I'll end it with that. <laughs> I hear you. <ya. laughs> thank you. <laughs> Good way to end it, folks. All right. Yeah. Thank you for watching another episode of Eminem and M Across the Board. We'll be back next week. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Tom Schaller, for all of his insights on his awesome book, which we hope you pick up. It's on Amazon starting next week. So grab it, Common Enemies, and uh, hopefully we can all get a chance to read it and talk about it again soon. Yeah. All right. Have a great week, everybody. See you guys. Bye, everybody. Thank you.